Thank you all for coming. Thank, thank you all for coming. Uh, this is the second in this year's uh, series on Islam, lecture series on Islam and democracy, sponsored by the Mershon Center, uh, but also by the Middle East uh, Studies Center, uh, by the Honors and Scholars Program, and by the Political Science Department. Uh, our speaker today is Nathan Brown, who's Professor of Political Science and International Affairs and Director of the Institute for Middle East Studies at George Washington University. Um, he received his MA and PhD in Politics and Near Eastern Studies from Princeton University uh, and his BA uh, before that at the University of uh, Chicago. Uh, let me just mention briefly, because it will give you a sense of what his accomplishments uh, have been. Uh, he's published several books uh, already in what is not uh, a, a very long career uh, yet, uh, starting with uh, Peasant Politics in Modern Egypt uh, with Yale Press in 1990, The Rule of Law in the Arab World with Cambridge uh, Press in 1997, Constitutions in a Non-Constitutional World, also obviously about the Middle East, uh, Sunni Press in 2002, and most recently, Palestinian politics after the Oslo Accords, uh, published by the University of California Press in 2003. Uh, that is really an estimable, just, just that alone is an estimable uh, record. Uh, today he's going to talk about the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, particularly in um, Egypt and Jordan, but also with references to many other Arab countries. Uh, Nathan. Uh, thanks very much um, for that kind introduction. I, um, I've never been to Ohio State before, but I'm really glad to see that kind of this universal rule of university life that students try to sit as far back in the room as possible <laughs> still applies. Um, I'm going to talk about um, Islamist movements in politics, uh, running to lose, um, uh, and really focus my attention on the Arab world, simply because I know it better than Islamist parties. I, I am aware of the fact that there are Islamist parties in other locations. Some of what I learned was actually from uh, um, our host here. Uh, but I don't know very much and certainly not enough to talk. I, I need to do more reading. The ones I am most familiar with are the ones in the Arab world. And the ones that I'm most familiar with by far are those that are based on what I would call sort of Muslim Brotherhood model. And I'll talk a little bit about what that model is. Um, a little bit later on. Um, but these are political movements, or broad uh, uh, social movements, um, that in recent years have greatly invested, uh, greatly increased their investment in the political process. And in an awful lot of countries, run enough candidates, or run a number of candidates, so that even if every single one of their candidates was victorious, they wouldn't get a, a majority in the parliament. They're running to lose elections. What's going on? Um, and whenever you talk about the Muslim Brotherhood um, in, in politics, you, people go to one of two cases. Number one, Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood. And then the question always gets posed, well, are they just like the Nazi parties using the democratic mechanism in order to destroy it? Or to Hamas, um, a... Um, an organization with a problematic record from, from an international perspective, uh, but the one that actually r ran and won an election. Um, but this is a lunchtime discussion. I didn't want to put Nazis and Hamas and suicide bombing and so forth right at the beginning. I'll get to them. Don't worry. Nazis will be mentioned in my talk. Uh, Hamas will be mentioned in my talk. Um, but I thought I'd start with a case of the Muslim Brotherhood that gets almost nobody excited, and that's the uh, case of the Islamic constitutional movement in Kuwait. And I thought I'd introduce you first to an unfortunately blurry man, but he, he's, he's very much in focus if you look at him on a smaller screen. That's a problem. Um, Jasmine Mahalhel, who was one of the founders of the Islamic constitutional movement in Kuwait, um, a political party that was founded in 1991. But before the Islamic constitutional movement was founded, he was a young activist with the uh, Kuwaiti branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And he was, you could say, sort of a little bit of a... Of, I mean, he's a very pleasant-looking man right now, uh, but he was a little bit of, of, I was going to call him a hell-raiser, but almost the exact opposite, a hell-putter-downer in his youth, because one of his greatest accomplishments as a young man was to push very hard and successfully to make sure that alcohol, the sale of alcohol was banned in Kuwait. In 1965, 
one of the first bold things that the parliament did was to pass a law banning the sale of alcohol in Kuwait. And it's still illegal today. Um, and um, Jasmine Mahalal is still alive. He's largely retired. He still is a little bit active in, 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 in life. But I um, had an interview with him a couple years ago, and I was just interested in the Muslim Brotherhood as a, as a political actor. So I asked him, what, in 1965, when you, when you decided that this is what your priority was, how did you go about it? How did you, I mean, this was, this was an incredible accomplishment. Uh, you got a law passed um, and for an organization that had very little kind of political experience or political agenda in the past. How did you do it? And he said, well, I got together, me and my friends, and we prayed. I thought, well, that's an interesting political technique, but presumably that's not exhaustive. You did other things other than pray. He said, well, yes, we prayed, and we went to the parliament, and we asked them. And I thought, this is not all that sophisticated political organization. I mean, um, um, you, prayers sometimes get answered, and his did, but presumably that's not a good basis for sustained, for sustained political experience. I want to bring you now to... a. Um, an, uh, another figure, this, is, this man's name is Usama Shaheen. He is two generations after Jassim Mahalhel in the Islamic Constitutional Movement. He was president of the Kuwaiti Students Association. He did not run for parliament on the, on, 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 on the Kuwaiti, um, on the Islamic Constitutional Movement ticket in the last election, but they were considering uh, putting him on the ballot, and he probably will be on the ballot if, in, in next parliamentary elections. He Gave, I was, I was invited shortly after meeting Jasmine Mahalhel to meet with, the, or to go to a session shortly before the Kuwaiti parliamentary elections of 2008 when they were training election day workers. And he was the primary speaker. And he came in and gave a very long and sophisticated briefing based on all sorts of expertise that they had um, uh, gathered, and he's a, law, he's a lawyer, so he gave a long thing on, on, on what the election law was and what campaign workers could do and what they couldn't do, those people who had been successfully registered as poll watchers, what they could do, challenging credentials, you know, uh, this, so forth and so on. He talked a lot about how to convey the organization's message, and he was relying there on the expertise that had been gained from a German political consulting firm that they had brought in to run focus groups on Kuwaiti voters to find out exactly how you communicate Islamist political messages successfully to Kuwaiti voters. And he had all kinds of advice. Um, keep smiling. Um, basically, give, give, uh, uh, you know, use these words, don't use those words. Um, 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 th- uh, those sorts of things. And at the very end of the session, um, the call to prayer came, and so he said... All right, now, the formal session is over. Uh, women, this was the first uh, uh, election in which, there, in which uh, women were allowed to vote. So he said women, um, uh, so there were a lot of women campaign workers, um, uh, women go to the buffet line, men go to the uh, prayer area. When the men are done praying, the women, the, the women pray. I, um, I'm not a woman, so I didn't get to eat. Um, and I'm not a Muslim, so I didn't go to pray. But I used the opportunity to to try and reflect a little bit on the, on, on the evolution between Jasmine Halhel um, and, uh, and Usama Shaheen, how far this party had come in terms of its ability to organize. They're still an Islamist party. They still do pray, right? Um, but they're clearly doing an awful lot more in order to participate in the political process. So the question that I was trying to ask was, how has this changed? How has the process of political participation changed in a, um, a, a, a Muslim Brotherhood type movement. Now, in one sense, the question isn't a new one. Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, actually ran for, tried to run for parliament twice. One time he got talked off the ballot, the other time he lost, uh, uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood charged serious electoral fraud in that organization. But even when the Muslim Brotherhood dabbled in politics, as they did, pretty much from the beginning, it wasn't a major focus of their affairs. Um, what has happened in recent years, as I said, is a great increase in the involvement of Islamist organizations in the political process in the Arab world. And the odd thing, as I say, is that none of these organizations um, uh, are participating in really well-functioning democracies. None of them really are confident when they 
enter an electoral process that they will be allowed to win. So, 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 so what's happening to them? To them? Why are they doing this and what's happening to them? Specifically, what I want to ask are these questions. What happens when, when Islamists, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to be plural, when Islamists invest in political participation? First, what does participation mean? What kind of participation are we talking about? Second, what are the costs and benefits of participation? Third, what happens to the organizations of these movements when they participate? Fourth, what happens to their ideologies? Then I want to take a little bit uh, look comparatively. And finally, what I want to do is, is what I'll be portraying is actually sort of a fairly stable situation of participation within certain, certain limits. And then I want to end then by talking about what could upset the rules of, of, of this game. So let me start with what does participation mean? What kind of participation are we talking about? Interestingly, when you hear that question posed in public discussions, usually the question is this. What is the effect of the movement on the system? What does it mean to have an Islamist movement participating in the, in the political process? How democratic are they? Um, um, what's, what, what is it going to do? Is it going to break the system if, an, if, if a movement with uncertain democratic credentials um, uh, 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 enters it? Interestingly, when scholars are, are approach the question, they tend to approach it very, very differently. They tend to look, the, the bias tends to be almost to look at the, uh, uh, to, to sort of reverse the arrow of causality. It's not what is the effect of the movements on the system that scholars like to ask. They tend to ask much more, what is the effect of the system on the movements? What happens um, to the movement uh, with, when, when these fairly powerful authoritarian or semi-authoritarian systems manages to attract the, the participation of Islamist movements. And that's basically, I think, probably closer to the approach that I'm, uh, that I'm taking. Um, so what kind of participation are we talking about in these systems? Well, for the most part, in the Arab world, you have elections. There are a few countries that have managed to avoid them, but almost all of them have them, and they have them regularly, right? The, 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 the question that is sometimes asked is, um, why do, you know, why is it that these uh, political systems have elections? The interesting thing is that in these societies, people rarely ask that question, right? Elections are just accepted. They're just regular. They're, uh, when are they held? They're usually held at the time that they're legally or constitutionally scheduled. Um, the, 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 um, they're simply part of, of, of the landscape. The fact of elections is actually fairly well established. Um, there are, again, a few exceptions, but the days in which Arab regimes routinely cancel elections are gone for the most part. Um, but while the rules, or the fact of elections um, um, is... Uh, is basically accepted. The rules by which they are governed are constantly changing. Are you going to have a proportional representation system? Are you going to have districts? Are you going to have some kind of mix between the two? That changes from election to election. How are the districts, if they're going to be districts, how are the districts drawn? Um, well, that's the outcome of, of political struggle and an ongoing political struggle. And very rarely does a country run the election based on the same rules twice. They're continuously tinkering with the rules by which elections are being held. Um, or, as you could uh, see here, they're tinkering with all rules but one. The rule that is absolutely fixed is you lose. Okay? The, all the rest of the rules are up for grabs. For the opposition, they can run, but they cannot win. And the rules are constantly restructured or rejiggered in order to entice in political participation from marginal, academic, uh, marginal opposition actors and sort of attract them in, um, but deny them the opportunity of voting. So if a particular electoral system does very, very well, or the opposition does very, very well, you can be virtually sure that it will be tinkered with for the next election. In the, uh, the Egyptian constitution, 1971 mandated full judicial supervision of elections. And that wasn't really honored for a long time. The Constitutional Court of the country ordered, in, 19, in, in 2000, ordered the uh, election authorities in Egypt to fully implement it, by which they meant that in every single Egyptian polling place, there had to be a judge overseeing the balloting and overseeing the counting of the ballot. And the opposition share went way up. So the regime decided, okay, well, we don't, we've lost control of the polling place, but 
one foot outside the polling place were in control. And so they would round up opposition poll workers as they were going to the polls. They would, um, um, opposition candidates would have their phone line cuts, phone cuts and so forth and so on. In the 2005 parliamentary elections, there was international election, there was not monitoring or observation um, because the Egyptian government did not want to permit that. So they called it intellectual, uh, international election um, tourism was the term that the uh, visitors used, but, but fairly seriously documenting this level of official interference in the election. And the Egyptian government finally then came in with a set of constitutional movement amendments which removed judicial supervision from the elections. Essentially, that's what they did. So in essence, they're basically keeping on tinkering with the rules to make sure that they can, um, that they can uh, um, get the result that they want which is that the opposition, as I said, runs but doesn't win. That's the rule, fundamental rule of the game for the regime. What about for, for the opposition parties, and especially for the Islamist opposition parties, which are the ones I'm interested in? They um, have an interesting slogan which they use in virtually all Arab countries, and that is, we run on the principle of participation, not domination. Okay? We run, but we don't win. And it's a phrase that is, is used over and over. When Hamas was considering running in the 2006 Palestinian parliamentary elections, they reached out to Muslim Brotherhood organizations, their sister organizations throughout the Arab world, and said, what do you think we should do? And the advice they got across the board was, run if you want, but don't win. Participate, but don't dominate. Um, participation, not domination. Okay, so that's, that's, that's kind of the basic principle on which they participate, essentially running, uh, re- reading how things work. What they do actually is sit down and figure out about how many seats could we get away with in this election. That's how many candidates we will run. Sometimes there seems to be some explicit bargaining between regime and opposition, but most of the time I think this is trial and error. Um, and, 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 and that determines the, the, uh, the, the, the level of participation. Now, that's uh, what, they're do, uh, uh, what they're doing. Now, let me take a look at the costs and benefits of participation. Why is it that the two sides are playing the game in this way? Well, first, from, uh, let me take a look at the set of benefits. Why is it that authoritarian regimes or semi-authoritarian regimes, um, as I would view most of them, um, want to have some level of participation. It has three main benefits for them. Number one, they keep the opposition out in the open. Right? Opposition that runs in parliamentary elections is opposition you can monitor and keep track of. And second, it keeps them within certain legal limits. That is to say, if you're going to run for parliamentary election as an electoralist, as a political party, there's certain legal things you have to do. Some places you might have to register as a political party. That means that there's a level of oversight and regulation um, that it gives um, um, the regime some avenues to uh, pressure. It um, um, it may, for instance, um, allow the regime to say, okay, any licensed political party cannot accept foreign funding. That sort of thing. Um, so it, 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 it allows the regime to place a specific legal framework which any participant in the system has to join. And third, there are some international benefits as well. I think those are sometimes exaggerated, but I think they are real. Um, that to say that, that um, you know, to the extent that de- democracy um, is um, an emerging international norm, there are some mild benefits to regimes from being able to say we have regular elections. Okay, so those are the benefits from the point of view of the region. Now, why would anybody run under these conditions? Run in elections which, which, which a condition for their running is that they lose. Well, there are three things that it, that it uh, does. Number one, it allows Islamist movements the opportunity to get their message out. Camp, elections and campaigns tend to be a little bit more um, uh, uh, open spaces. I'll say something more about that in, in, in just a second. Um, it also means that if you're, if you get some seats, I cannot believe one of your students left their cell phone on. 
my apologies. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, what was the speaker saying? Um, giving the message out. Yes, yes. If you get seats in Parliament, you get parliamentary immunity. Um, you get uh, sometimes opportunity to travel. What, for instance, is the official U.S. government position on talking to Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood? Well, the, uh, this goes back, and it's been worked out over the years, but essentially the United States government will work with any legal uh, political force in Egypt. Muslim Brotherhood is not legal. So the uh, American, official American community cannot meet with members of the Muslim Brotherhood as members of the Muslim Brotherhood. However, members of parliament are government officials. We can meet with them. So it allows them to travel. It allows them to meet with foreign diplomats sometimes with some kind of cover. It allows them sometimes a, a, a parliamentary immunity. Um, so that these are very effective m- means for, uh, for, for delivering a message. Second thing is it often allows them to operate legally. That is to say, it may be a restrictive legal framework, but it is something. Um, it allows that if, if I were to say, you know, there, there is an organization, it's not imaginary, there is an organization called Hamas. However, if you were to say, where is like, Hamas at, as a legally recognized organization, well, it doesn't exist. There is no legal entity called Hamas. Um, under um, The Israelis, of course, never recognize it. Uh, the Palestinian Authority never recognized it. There is, however, a change and reform electoral list that is legally recognized by the Palestinian Authority. It gives them some legal status and some legal standing. In other countries, it allows them the, the opportunity to form actually as a legally registered political party. And again, this gives them some legal protections. It gives them the uh, uh, ability to do things like open a bank account or take out advertisements. It allows them some kind of legally recognized corporate existence. And the third thing it allows them to do, and this is probably most significant, it allows them to reach out to new groups. These groups, uh, these Islamist movements, are fairly good at communicating with their hardcore supporters. They've got all kinds of channels of communication with them. But when it comes to reaching out to, say, a religiously conservative but not necessarily politically or socially involved public, when it comes to reaching out sometimes to uh, people who are pressing for all kinds of reform but aren't necessarily particularly religious in nature, um, election campaigns are wonderful opportunities to do that because not only does it give them sort of the protective uh, space that I'm talking about, it sometimes gives them access to media. Um, sometimes even government-controlled media. All political parties will get like, you know, half an hour a day during the campaign, this sort of thing. Um, so that there is a much greater level of, uh, of, uh, of uh, or, or much greater ability to reach out to, to, to newer kinds of groups. Um, the, the benefits are real for both sides. They're not overwhelming, right? It's not as if the regime would say, we absolutely want, under all conditions, Islamist movements to run. It's not as if Islamist movements are saying, we absolutely want to run under all conditions. They're saying, on balance, there, is some, there are some good things that could come out of it. There are also some costs. For the regime, Islamist movements tend to be noisier. They tend to make more demands. They tend to have a, a fairly, fairly, uh, uh, take a fairly critical line. Um, this wasn't always the case, but as they've invested much more in politics, Islamist movements have um, sort of stepped up their opposition coloration. So if you allow the opposition to, uh, the Islamist opposition to run in politics and allow them to uh, uh, sort of uh, try, try and hold an opposition message, you'll have a noisier opposition. And that's a pain. Second, you run the risk of allowing the opposition to, run, to, to, to strike deeper and broader roots. And I'd probably emphasize the broader as much as the deeper. That is to say, it's the reverse of this, about the reaching out to new groups. They can develop their constituencies outward and reach out to um, populations that they were not able to, to, to reach before. For an Islamist movement, um, there, are some, there are some problems as well. Um, Participation does a few things, or has a few costs. Number one, these are organizations with limited resources. 
And it's sometimes the case that what they invest in one area means they will not be able to invest in another area. So, for instance, in the 2005 parliamentary election, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood got 88 deputies elected to the Egyptian parliament. And they were, dis- they, they were um, uh, insistent that they would use this opportunity, 88 out of, I can't remember, like 450 seats or so, um, something like that. So they knew they couldn't pass a bill. But they also knew that the spotlight would be on them, that the speaker might be able to ignore some of them, some of the time, but couldn't ignore them all, all the time. So they'd have a platform, um, and, they were, and they wanted to, say, to use this opportunity to say, we can craft and present an alternative political vision for Egypt. We can't implement any of it, but at least we can present it. But how are you going to do that? What that means is you've got to be willing to, uh, or be, be able to question ministers in cases of corruption, draft legislation, which you know doesn't chan- uh, uh, stand any chance of passing. And that means what you've got to do is to draw in the expertise of the organization in order to support the work of these 88 uh, members of parliament. The work of the 88 members of parliament was significant enough that the Muslim Brotherhood actually found itself forced to buy a building where they would house these people when they would come to Cairo for parliamentary sessions. They were forced to give them you know, media training because some members of the Muslim Brotherhood, when they talk to reporters, say embarrassing things. So you've got to give them some good media training. Um, you've got to give them some good research staff. They can go, theoretically, to the parliament's research staff, um, but requests generally go through the speaker's office and sometimes get lost in the process somehow. So if they really want to be able to do this, um, um, they've got to be able to reach out to their constituents and say, you know, what is the problem in your province? What is the problem in your your village, in in your town that you want brought to uh, uh, and placed on a parliamentary agenda? And and so you've got limited resources which you could be using for other things. You could be using for educational work, for charitable work, for social work, for all kinds of outreach. and, um, and the limited resources, I should say, also, um, um, you expose to some risk. Some of the Muslim Brotherhood voluntary staff members for these members of parliament got arrested, which they probably wouldn't have done if they weren't involved in, in politics but were involved in more, sort of more social things. So, so it's a, it can be a drain on resources. Second, it affects the organization's or organizations sometimes worry it affects the balance between tactics and strategy or their sense of time. Right? Islamist movements, if you ask an Islamist leader, well, what are you going, you know, the government has just arrested 50 of your followers. What are you going to do? And the response almost always is, well, what, what can we do? I mean, um, this regime will not be around forever. These conditions will not be around forever. Don't worry. We're not in this for achieving anything tomorrow or next week. We're in this for the long haul. We think in decades. We don't think in, in day to day. Well, that's, prob- that's true for most uh, movements. For mo- it's certainly for a, a, a lot of different kinds of social movement, and it's certainly true for most Islamist movements. They pride themselves on this, on patience, on their ability to endure, on their ability to keep an eye on the greater strategic vision rather than the, the short-term tactical decision. That becomes harder when you're involved in the political process uh, that, that has a regular electoral cycle. When the question is, and, and, and the question of agenda setting isn't necessarily completely under your control. There's such an issue, such and such an issue that is going to come on the parliamentary agenda next week and it places you in an embarrassing position. How are your deputies going to vote? Um, if you vote this way, how will that affect your chances in the next election? And so movements sometimes worry that they will get sucked in to this short-term, day-to-day tactical game-playing rather than, um, uh, and, and, and that they will lose their sense of, 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 um, of, of long-term vision. Islamist critics of these movements, especially if you're talking about uh, Salafi movements, uh, Islamist movements that are much more focused on correct interpretation of text and practice, 
what they'll say is, you know, Muslim Brotherhood or those kinds of movements, they're really political movements. They've gone so far down this road of political participation that in a sense they've, they've forgotten their religion. Um, so that's the second cost. And third, there's a problem of tensions among constituencies, right? When you reach out to new groups, that's great. But sometimes these new groups are looking for things that your old core constituency wasn't necessarily quite so concerned about. Core constituency is often concerned with, with, with cultural issues, religious issues. When the Muslim Brotherhood or movements like this run in parliamentary elections, what they're trying to do is to say, look, we're not just about banning movies which show too much skin. We're, we have a comprehensive reform vision for the society. We have a policy on this. We have a stand on that, on economic issues, on tourism, on, 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 uh, on, on environment. And sometimes the constituencies are pulling in different directions. Sometimes they want to see a little bit more focus on economics, but the core constituency says, wait a second, you know, being a good Muslim is not just about making a buck. I mean, so, 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 so they will sometimes find themselves torn in different direction. The balance is what produces the outcome that I'm talking about for both regimes and Islamist movements in the Arab world over the last 20 years or so, this balance of running but, not, but losing. For both sides, this is stable for the short to medium term. That is to say, regimes looking at this, at this balance sheet have generally come to the conclusion it's good to have these movements involved in the political process so long as they don't threaten victory. And the Islamist movements, for the most part, have said, look, it's good to keep one foot in the electoral process as long as we don't get totally sucked up and totally invested in it. So we will run, but we won't win. Um, now, what happens to these movements when they decide to play this game? Play the game of running but not winning. Uh, uh, First, what happens to them on an organizational basis? The real question that most of the movements face is, do we form a political party? Do we form a um, distinct organization associated with the movement that is dedicated to, primarily to the political struggle? The answer most of them have come up with is actually yes, if the legal environment allows it. So Jordan had a new political party law in 1992 or 1993, I think. Muslim Brotherhood was the very first group to show up to file for, uh, uh, to, get, to get legal status. Um, the uh, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood uh, um, Consultative Council took a decision about 1990 authorizing the creation of a political party. There's a problem. Egyptian law bans it, and now the Constitution bans it. So they've taken a decision in principle that they'd be willing to form a political party, but they don't have the ability to do so. Um, but the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood is actually traditionally the one that was most suspicious of the idea of partisanship. Um, Kuwaiti, uh, one that I talked about, there is no provision in Kuwaiti law to form a political party. They still manage to form something called the Islamic Constitutional Movement, which exists, it just has no formal legal status. Um, um, and, and which is a pain for them to deal with, but 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 um, but they do they do deal with it. They're not suppressed or anything like that. So the answer is usually for most of these uh, uh, for most Muslim Brotherhood groups, yes, we will go ahead and form a party. But then the real question becomes: is How long a leash do you give this party? The part if you give the party a longer leash, it might be more successful. But on the other hand, it might start compromising on principle. That's part of the trade-off. And there's something else as well. You give the party a long leash, it might start doing things that will endanger the movement as a whole. In 2005, no, 2006, I think it was, when uh, Zarqawi was killed in Iraq. Zarqawi was Jordanian. And he'd been associated with some uh, hotel bombings in Jordan. When he was killed by American forces in Iraq, his family set up a funeral tent in Jordan. Four members of the Islamic Action Front, the political party associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, four members of parliament showed up at the funeral tent. One of them referred to Zarqawi as a martyr. And what did this mean for the, uh, uh, well, for the regime, this was not simply 
edging over red line. This was bounding over red line. They stripped these four MPs of their immunity, um, bust them out to a, a, a desert prison, actually did it in the opposite order, bust them out to a desert prison, and then removed the, their parliamentary immunity. That's how mad they were. Um, essentially, very clear violation of Jordanian law, which they soon corrected, um, by not, not by releasing them, but by uh, 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 stripping them of their immunity. Um, and um, um, and then the regime released them eventually. But they went to the Islamic Center, which was an NGO that is associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, which runs one of the biggest hospitals and has one of the biggest medical care systems in the kingdom, really a core activity for the movement, and said, we're shocked to find out that your hiring practices are in violation of Jordanian law, and we therefore will appoint a temporary board to oversee the affairs of the Islamic Center. They took over the largest NGO in the country that the Muslim Brotherhood, and it was one that the Muslim Brotherhood had run, basically as a way of saying, keep your people in line. And so giving a party a long leash can sometimes expose it in all kinds of ways. And so basically what the... um, the, the, the reaction in this kind of netherworld of running but not winning is to say, look, if we give a political party a very long leash, it might be able to get us a few more seats, but we know we won't win. It might be able um, to play the political game a little bit better. Um, but on the other hand, it might also expose us in all kinds of ways. So what they tend to do is to form political parties that have very short leashes that are very closely controlled and monitored by the movements. The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, for instance, when it runs parliamentary candidates, every single one of them is a full member of the organization. It does not run non-Muslim Brotherhood members because it wants to know that it can basically pull on movement discipline to tell these members what to do in an emergency. So that's what they tend to do. What happens to them organizationally? They what I call sort of a half-step in the direction of politics. They set up this structure, which hints at full political participation, but then give it a very short leash. What about ideologically? Well, the, um, let me just start with sort of an interesting observation. My, um, my uncle was a member of an organization that probably very few of you have heard of before, but will believe me that it exists, the Communist Party of Indiana. He was purged from the Communist Party of Indiana in the late 1930s for an ideological offense, which he, when I asked him, couldn't remember. Um, Now, how many members did the Communist Party of Indiana have? I suspect what happened was that his three friends got angry at him and kicked him out. Okay? (laughs) If you know anything about far-left politics, this wouldn't surprise you. Now, let me tell you something else that's interesting. Muslim Brotherhood movements almost never kick anybody out for what they believe or what they say. It's really hard to get kicked out. You will get kicked out if you do something. If the party says, we're, or the movement says, we're not running candidates, and you say, I'm running. If the government says, would you like to serve as minister of so-and-so, and you say yes without consulting the movement, they will kick you out. But for the most part, these are highly ideological movements that don't police the ideology of their members very much. Getting involved in political process tests their, them ideologically. It tests them in a couple ways. First, because they've got these... Um, various constituencies that I talked about. They've got to balance their new constituencies and the old ones. And that they can sometimes do, okay, with creative language. But sometimes it forces them to make choices. Sometimes it forces them to decide, are we going to run women candidates or not? Are we going to vote for this bill or not? As long as you stay out of politics... And as long as you're clever with language, you can usually paper over any difference. But when you enter politics, this becomes a little bit harder. And the more you enter politics, and the more you enter structures like parliament or elections, where you do not completely control the agenda and the set of questions being asked, the, um, 
the 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 more you um, uh, you can get trapped. In um, 2005, I was in this um, setting in Ramallah, where there was a forum of various Palestinian. Uh, a very pa- various Palestinian political leaders were there. Every, almost everybody in the forum was from the, uh, they were secularists, they were leftists of various types, nationalists of various types. They had the leader of Hamas in the West Bank was there. So it's kind of this, you know, and Hamas had just made a decision to participate in the upcoming parliamentary elections. So everybody was there. Everybody was, in a sense, slightly hostile to the speaker, but very interested in what he had to say. And he gave some kind of general speech. First questions he got asked, woman in the audience was, if Hamas ran, r- runs and gets enough seats to demand a ministry, and if you got the Ministry of Education in the Palestinian Authority, would you make wearing of the hijab, you know, the, 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 the partial face veil, would you make wearing of the hijab mandatory in the schools of the Palestinian Authority? And his answer was, and I quote it word for word, the Palestinian Authority has no authority, so the question is irrelevant. Okay? Great politician's answer. What he really meant was, I'm not going to tell you, and what he probably thought was, I don't have the slightest idea. I don't know what we would do. Then they won. Then they had the Ministry of Education. Then suddenly they had to decide, and that's what politics does. The more you get involved, sometimes the more you have to make choices. And the more, when you, remember, you can get kicked out of the Muslim Brotherhood for what you do, or you, they sometimes schism over, over these sorts of things. This is when the organization actually begins to run into trouble, when it has to make actually hard choices. The Muslim Brotherhood political party, the Islamic Action Front in Jordan, right now is in a state of civil war. They're all over the map ideologically, but what's really fighting, what's really catching up the civil war is the question of, how many candidates and which candidates are they going to run in elections? That's, that's the specific trigger point. So what happens to them ideologically is that they f- often find themselves trapped. They find themselves wanting to hint out sort of new ideas that would be uh, uh, appealing to a much broader audience, um, but worrying about the possibility of this causing schisms. It's one last example as a result, uh, and then I'll go on to the next point, um, but um, in Kuwait, the issue of political rights for women was a, a long-time issue in, in the country. And the Muslim Brotherhood, along with some other Islamist parties, basically opposed them. This was embarrassing to them. They would show up internationally and get asked, why are you against political, why is Islam against women? Okay, which wasn't a question they really liked to answer. Um, domestically, they were saying, you know, don't you have anything serious to do with your time other than trying to block women from getting the right to vote? Within the organization, a lot of the leadership said, look, this is not an Islamic issue. It is not. There's nothing in violation of Islamic There's no Islamic law provisions on voting. Okay, so this is just causing us trouble. Let's drop it. And some people, the core constituency said, essentially, you know, you do that and you're selling out. And so the movement dithered and argued over this for a long time. Finally, they hammered out a position. And the position was this. We um, support voting for women, but we oppose full political rights if that means holding ministerial position. Okay? It was a compromise that pleased nobody, but at least it held the organization together. Shortly following this, the government managed to force the parliament to vote on a, right that, a law that gave full political rights to women, including rights to hold ministerial position. Muslim Brotherhood voted against it, but was absolutely delighted when it became law because they, didn't, they could stop worrying about it. it, it and, but this is, again, what politics does. It makes you kind of hammer out compromises in, to satisfy internal audiences, and sometimes that gets very hard. Um, okay, what's the best analogy to try? Or what, I want to place this a little bit in comparative perspective. The ones it's always used are is is uh, Nazis, right? Muslim members of the Muslim Brotherhood are just like Nazis. They will use, they're an undemocratic movement using the democratic system. Well, as you can tell, I'm not sure that's all that good an analogy because the systems aren't all that democratic. And the way I've described them, they're not necessarily anti-democratic. Um, 
The ones that Muslim Brotherhood members like to use is that they're like Christian Democrats. Okay? They're like Christian Democrats in the sense that what they are are political parties perfectly at home in the democratic system and perfectly at home with democratic procedures who simply draw on religion for their inspiration. Um, I don't think that's a great analogy either because, again, they're not operating in fully functioning democracies. The, the analogy is a little bit better if you go back 100 years or so ago to when Christian democracy was a lot edgier in its content. Um, they were Christian Democrats because they weren't liberals. They weren't liberal Democrats. They were anti-liberal. Um, they were probably far more... They took the Christian part a lot more seriously. And the political systems in which they were operating were far less um, uh, firmly democratic. But there's a couple other analogies I'd like to use as well. One has to do with... Does anybody here know the motto of the Muslim Brotherhood? Islam is the solution, yes and no. Yes, it's the electoral slogan of the Muslim Brotherhood in most countries when they run, but that goes back to the mid-80s. There's one that's older, that's on their motto, and it's right here. And it is translated, be prepared. Literally, be prepared. Now, where do they get this from? It is Quranic. Okay? It is from the Quran. Means, or prepare yourselves. I mean, it's the imperative of prepare. In the pl- pr- imperative plural of prepare. But be prepared is as good a translation as any other. It is, of course, also the motto of the Boy Scouts. And, um, okay, all right, all right. I've got one more point to make after this. Okay. Um, after, after the Boy Scouts, it, it, it is a motto of the Boy Scouts. Um, it is, um, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded by a man who knew the Boy Scout example very, very well. What he was interested in doing was not simply founding another scouting organization, however. He was interested in creating an organization that would foster the, a new, more Islamic, more virtuous, public-spirited generation in society. This was about making a better individual, making a better society. That's what the Muslim Brotherhood is about. It's not about just being a political party. And that's where the toothpaste analogy comes up. The Muslim Brotherhood organizationally looks a little bit like a tube of toothpaste. You squeeze it one area, it comes out somewhere else. You say, no politics, they say, fine, we'll go do social work. You let it, you, you, you let it do politics, but you squeeze their socials, fine, they do politics. That is probably a far better analogy than Nazis. This is a movement with a very flexible organizational structure. And now my last point, I promise, which I'll go through very quickly. What could upset the rules of the ga- uh, this game that I'm talking about, of running but not... Uh, of, uh, uh, running but losing? Well, first, running to win. If the Muslim Brotherhood in these systems ever decided to run the win, it would upset the rules of the game, and that's what Hamas did. They run, they ran, they won, and it completely broke the system. And if you talk to leaders of Muslim Brotherhood movements in other countries in the Arab world, what they will say is, of course, what happened to Hamas was unfair, and America and Israel, blah, 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 but boy, did they make a mistake. And we will never do that. And the other is miscalculation. Regimes sometimes miscalculate. That's what the Palestinian Authority did. It wrote an election law that it knew it would, would, would allow, would entice Hamas in, but force it to lose, and they screwed up. So regimes can miscalculate, movements can miscalculate. As long as neither does, I would expect kind of this half-in, half-out cat-and-mouse game to continue. So, thanks. Take your own question? Yes, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. The first. Uh, um, um, I'm sorry. First question again was safety valve. safety valve. Do regimes see it as a safety valve? So it depends on the regime, and uh, depends on when you're talking about. But often this is explicitly the calculation that, look, we could deal with an Islamist movement that is above ground that says wacky things that we don't like, but at least they're not going to hurt anybody. 
Um, and, and, and that sometimes happens. Um, I would say that's probably the, was the dominant approach for a lot of regimes back if you, when they first decided to sort of entice Islamist movements into the political process. Um, I think that reasoning is probably, let me put it this way. Regimes internally are sometimes split on this. Um, and let me put the Jordanian as the example with Zarqawi. There's a very clear split among the Jordanian leadership. How do we deal with these people? And there's some who says basically the only good Islamist is an Islamist in jail. And there are some who say we throw them in jail and we will drive them underground. The first approach is actually the one that I think is kind of dominant. I'm exaggerating a lot because they're cl- clearly not out of jail. But the, but, 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 but the part of the regime that says this is fundamentally secu- Islamists are fundamentally a security challenge and have to be dealt with, with security measures um, um, are dominant over the part, of this, the part of the regime that says this is really a fundamentally a political challenge to us and we've got to kind of parry and thrust and this sort of thing. Um, but again, it varies very much from country to country. In, um, but I see the first approach, kind of the security-oriented approach, rising in, in the last uh, uh, decade or so in most countries. Uh, freedom of speech, what can you say? Again, it varies an awful lot from country to country. In almost all, in fact, to say in all countries, there's reference to red lines, okay? I find the concept of red lines misleading because it implies that there's a firm boundary that everybody knows. Well, how do you know that, that you cross a red line? Usually after you've crossed it. <laughs> And um, so there aren't red lines, I think, in most of these places. What, it, what there is is there are certain things you can say and certain things you can't say, but it depends sometimes how you said it, who said it, and who's reading the newspaper that day. Um, what I would say in general is that in the Arab world, the red lines have been pushed pretty far outward in most countries. That, to me, is why I refer to these as semi-authoritarian. You can say an awful lot. Um, um, you can't do anything. Right? An Egyptian friend of mine once said, you know, in Egypt today you can think whatever you want, you can say whatever you want, you can usually write whatever you want. If you, if you say something about the president or his family, you can sometimes get in a little bit of trouble, but you just can't do anything. The minute you organize, you run into trouble. And I would say that would be a fairly safe rule to go by for, the, for, for that region as a whole. Uh, yeah, Um, it's a great question, and I'm not sure I have a great answer to match. Um, what I would say is, I'm looking at a restricted set of Islamist organizations in the first place. So I'm not looking at the Taliban. I'm not even looking at Hezbollah. I'm looking at, at essentially Muslim Brotherhood type organizations. They're, they're not all formally affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, but they're all kind of um, based on that model. And I would say two things. Number one, we often overestimate the size of these organizations. These are not necessarily big or huge organizations. In a lot of these societies, there's a large Islamist social service sector. Okay, There's a lot of NGOs, charitable organizations, neighborhood associations, schools, and this sort of thing that are Islamic in coloration, where a lot of the people involved may be sympathetic with the organization, but have no formal ties, or maybe they're active in the organization, but, but the activities are sort of separate. But they're, sort of, they, but they're financing the sort of separate. The organizations themselves and their core is often actually fairly small, much smaller than you would think. Where they seem to be funded in these countries, with the exception of Hamas, which does, well, I'll talk about Hamas in a second, uh, in most countries it's 
I think, from wealthy members. Sometimes from wealthy members in other countries. That is to say, you know, when, when the Egyptian government cracked down on the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1950s and 1960s, a lot of their leaders fled, went to the Gulf, got rich. Okay, they went back to Egypt, and so there are some wealthy businessmen who support the organization. They still got ties with the Gulf. So it's clear that the Gulf is, is and private individuals in the Gulf is, are, are a source of funding. Um, so that's, that, that would, so number one, the organization is smaller. Number two, to the extent that they get uh, funds, they often get them from their own memberships um, uh, and from key individuals in their memberships. Third, Hamas is an exception, um, and yet I think Hamas as a party or as an organization, gets funded primarily by other Muslim Brotherhood organizations, perhaps partly from Iran. The government, the government of Gaza, which Hamas runs, is financially separate and clearly gets an awful lot of money from Iran and from other international supporters. Um, but I think that they keep the, the, the uh, um, since 2007, since they seized control of the Palestinian Authority in, in Gaza, I think they keep party and government separate. And I think most of the Iranian funds go to the gov- on the government side, but I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think there might be another aspect to incentives for brother, uh, Muslim Brotherhood type organizations to participate in this community. And that is, um, it's, it's part, part of uh, expanding on what you're saying about it. It's, it's uh, getting the message out and broadening their, their network of, of contacts. And that is specifically is connecting with those organizations you just mentioned, those that are of charities and local efforts that have this kind of coloration, but have no particular political allegiance. But I, I'm thinking that, that it's, it's really reaching out to, 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 to build uh, a, a grassroots organization uh, across society. And so I wonder what you thought about that, about that being a, an incentive to participate. But also, the question would also be, to what extent are the politically uh, involved the relevant in competition with the non-political ones that you also mentioned, the ones in Southwest who are more purely mm-hmm. religious, and uh, that this is a, a competition among Islamists for the regions of, the, of that last groups. That's a great question. In terms of the first, I, yes, I think that absolutely is the case, at least in some countries. I saw this most clearly in the Palestinian case. Again, Hamas as an organization is smaller than we sometimes think, but there's a whole slew of Islamic colored organizations out there. When they ran in the 2006 parliamentary elections, they very clearly, somehow they managed to sort of portray themselves as, I mean, the analogy I would use would be something like, you know, the civil rights movement in the United States. The leadership, the formal leadership of the civil rights movement was very, very small. What they were built on was a network of primarily churches or other religious institutions where they could just pull out the supporters. And the idea was, this is our movement, okay? And I think something like that goes on. It goes on in the case of Hamas. I think it goes on with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt as well, the organization itself. You know, I mean, it, the number of uh, members probably in the tens of thousands, but they can, they, they can just pull on people who just say, okay, this is our movement. In terms of competition, that varies an awful lot on country to country. I don't think there is a competition, if you mean between kind of the more social organizations and the political side. There is a competition for the political loyalties of this kind of Islamic social sec- sector, especially between Salafis and uh, in brotherhood types. There's a definite competition that goes on there. Um, um, it's not unbridled competition. There is sometimes some overlap and sometimes some competition, excuse me, some cooperation. But for the most part, these are two organizations that say, I mean, you know, the Salafis would say, you call them Muslims. And uh, the Muslim Brotherhood would say, you know, the, you know, <laughs> Those people are, you know, spending all their time deciding, you know, how it is that uh, the Islamic way to brush your teeth, whereas, you know, Islam is about everything. Um, and that definitely goes on. It, I've, I mean, it definitely goes on in um, in Kuwait. It may be breaking out in Egypt and other places in the Arab world. Jordan, it certainly happens. So in other places in the Arab world. So that would be the way that I would kind of conceptualize it. Yeah. In light of your discussion, can you back up a little bit and help us understand what was happening Brotherhood and the assassination of Sadat. Yeah, as far as I can, I, here's what I, here's the story as far as I can tell it. In in the Brotherhood was basically stomped in the 50s and 60s, driven underground, leaders in prison, um, and so on. Sadat lets them out of jail, and they slowly begin to reemerge. At the same time, and completely separately from this, 
um, there's sort of a wave of Islamic activism on Egyptian college campuses. There's a key moment in the late 70s when the old Muslim Brotherhood leaders and the young student activists kind of sit down and say, do we have common cause? And the, the young student leaders kind of split. Some of them say, that is the old way. We don't want to become armchair Islamists. We want to go out and do things. Um, we do not accept the legitimacy of this government. We want to opt out of the system. And there were some who say, look, the Muslim Brotherhood path is the way to go. That was a basic division in the Islamic movement in Egypt in the late 70s. What the Brotherhood was actually trying to do, if you go back and you read the accounts of the people who were, who were involved in this effort, was trying to basically take what they saw as hot-headed but, you know, hot-headed but, but, but pious youth and convert them over to kind of the gradualist Muslim Brotherhood path. What they would have seen then as gradualist and peaceful. The group that assassinated Sadat was basically associated with those that said the Muslim Brotherhood has the old ways. So the Muslim Brotherhood itself, I think, you know, had no association with the assassination of Sadat. Um, you could say that some ideas that an earlier generation of Muslim Brotherhood leaders had spawned had, 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 had led to this kind of intellectual and ideological process. But the, as an organization itself, it had tried to repudiate those ideas. Yeah. If the Muslim Brotherhood was allowed to run in Egypt and open free elections, you monitoring really set the rules. Would they win? If I were monitoring it? Um, I, I don't think I don't think they could, could come ballots past a hundred if they were if I were running it. But but yeah, would they win? It's an impossible question to answer, and here's why. Turnout in Egyptian elections is probably like ten to fifteen percent. Why? Because Egyptian voters know what the, what this game is about. Why would you ever show up and vote? And I left the voters out of this, right? And the voters, eighty to eighty-five percent of the voters react. See, I just told you I couldn't do the math. Eight, ten to fifteen. Percent uh, vote, and then I've got 80 to 85. Those don't quite add up, but you get the idea. Um, um, uh, uh, they, 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 they read what these elections are about fairly effectively. If you had elections which the opposition could win, you'd have very different kinds of elections. I actually think the guy who's worked best on this, a guy by the name of Tariq Masood, who's uh, probably going to be publishing his book on this within the next year or so. And essentially, he makes the same kind of argument. These elections are almost designed to motivate highly, in which sort of more more highly motivated parties can do well. Because if you can get a small number of highly motivated supporters out, you you can actually do decently. If you had elections which appealed to the vast majority of unpolitical Egyptians, you'd have a very different political landscape. And the Muslim Brotherhood might be able to, to run fairly effectively to make that transition, but it would be a very, very different kind of campaign that they would have to run. There are certainly people who say this is stupid, and let's not and let's quit, okay? Um, but so, so the, the, that argument is certainly made. Two things that make it that give it a little bit less purchase. First, you said, you know, why is it that we legitimate this? I don't think there's much legitimation going on here. I don't think many people are fooled by this. So participation, I don't think, actually legitimates very much, and I think that's a reading of it. Um, does it discredit the movement? Yeah, there are some people who are worried about this. What is the alternative? There are some people who say, within the Brotherhood milieu, who actually, who say, let's just quit. Leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood. The more common response, I would think, I, I think is not let's quit, but let's pull, let's pull back our investment a little. I mean, yes, we should probably keep a finger in this, but there's other things we should be doing right now. So I think what you would see is not like a sudden boycotting, but instead 
a gravitation of attention and investment elsewhere. And I think that's actually beginning to happen. I would say the big problem for Egypt right now, for the Egyptian regime, the Egyptian regime basically has no legitimacy. But what it has been able to do is basically monopolize the political field. There is all kinds of, uh, of uh, discontent and grievance out there. There's nobody who can really harness that in any, in any kind of so- social or political structure. So somebody like Bardet can make a great flash and and gets all kinds of attention. Um, it's not quite, he's got no organization or no structure backing him. The one organization that kind of crossed this divide that could say we've got a, a real constituency out there and we can play the political game from an opposition perspective was the Muslim Brotherhood, and I think right now they're bottled up. So it's a regime that's kind of in trouble, but there's no alternative. Um, and that's what they're very, very good at, um, making clear that you have one choice. And so, I, I mean, I, 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 I think long-term it's not a healthy situation, but I don't see anything dramatically changing short-term. Should I take one more? Okay, go ahead. How does the future look for Jamal Mubarak? The grooming has gone on longer than Prince Charles is grooming, it seems like right now. Um, yeah, I mean... I think so. I mean, I think there's an interesting pattern in these kinds of regimes um, that that occurs. And so here's what I would I would think would happen: the um, you have a, a succession crisis, um, and a regime that is this highly centralized will sometimes just for desperation gravitate around a single figure. And Jamal Mubarak is the only viable one that really exists right now. There are a couple other possibilities, but, but, but actually he's, he's by far the most uh, viable. It's not clear what effect he can have in terms of pulling these various structures, you know, security services and a National Democratic Party, governing party together. It's not you know, clear if, you know, if he's there just because he happens to be there. And there's a fairly consistent pattern, certainly in Egypt and also in some similar kinds of regime. What happens when you have a new leader come in? Well, he does... He, Liberalizes and he liberalizes for two reasons. Number one, it reaches out to the opposition and kind of builds broader bases of support. And number two, it allows him to eliminate rivals and pockets of opposition. Okay, so I would expect Jamal Mubarak to come in and discover to his great shock that the Interior Ministry was torturing people and that the uh, uh, the Election Commission was actually rigging elections. And that's what I would expect. Um, a succession to Jamal Mubarak, a tactical liberalization of, of a couple years that will kind of solidify the regime and put him right back there in the center of it, um, and then return to business as usual. Uh, our time is up. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you.